Hello, hello everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to build an unbreakable SaaS business and scale beyond 10K and MRR. Today, we have our guest, Matt Verlack, joining us. Matt serves as the COO at SaaS Academy, a premier training hub for B2B SaaS entrepreneurs, where they specialize in playbooks, templates, and lessons tailored for the SaaS world. The Academy provides both business solutions as well as personal growth coaching. Matt also leads the Growth Accelerator Program, where they help early founders scale beyond 10K in MRR. Beyond his professional role, Matt is a dedicated family man. He has an, up, an upcoming author to set his first book that's supposed to release in 2024. And he's also the co-founder and CEO of Uplaunch, a triathlete and a former firefighter. So welcome, Matt, man. You're, you've got a bit of everything. Super excited to have you on the show. Quite the intro, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Love it, man. So uh, I know you, um, I guess, you know, you also work with Dan Martell, who's also big in the space with, with SAS Academy. I'd love to hear, you know, your background, how do you and Dan work together with SAS founders and your training and accelerator program? And, and how does that work? If you can start with that. Yeah, for sure, man. So I actually encountered SAS Academy as a client. I was, uh, you know, when I went from fireman to founder with my first company, Uplaunch, I realized I had no idea pretty much what the hell I was doing at all. We, uh, we kind of brute forced it to about um, about 18k in monthly recurring revenue and sat there for a year and a half, and that's a it's a weird place to plateau. Although it's exceedingly common to plateau right there, but it's it's tough because it's it's too big to just turn it off. Like you, you think there's a business there, but it's not big enough to like really start leaning into hiring a team and growing. So it's like it's something, but it's not something. You know, it's this weird adolescent stage of business. So. I um I joined SAS Academy as a client in 2018 and like I, I signed up two days later, I was on a plane going to an in-person event in Toronto. I'd never even been to Canada. I had no idea what was happening. And, um, and it was crazy, man. Like I went into that room and I was doing so many things wrong in that first <laughs> company. And I'm looking around and I'm like, all right, I'm doing all this stuff different than everyone else here. And I'm also like the brokest guy in this room. So I should probably just listen. And, yeah. and do some work. And so that was my first time meeting Dan. That was my first time meeting, you know, um, even, you know, Johnny Page, who's the third partner in SAS Academy. Now we were both clients at that point. So, so it was a, it was an important room in the trajectory of Matt, you know? Um, and so, you know, Dan and the team coached me all the way through the acquisition of that company in 2020. And then we just kind of kept in touch after that, you know, and uh, I worked for the company that acquired us for about a year. Then Dan and I did some investing together and then um, ended up partnering on SaaS Academy in 2022. So that's kind of the the trajectory as far as how Dan and I hooked up. Um, so it's kind of a kind of an interesting story. And so, so you're 18K MRR, you get there, you know, it seems like you're, you're humbled by, you know, what you see around you and what everybody else is doing. Um, you know, through that coaching that you worked with Dan, what did you end up, you know, taking it or even close to, if you can say like, how much did that help you? Yeah, yeah. So like from a revenue standpoint, we were at about a little over 150K a month um, when we ended up exiting. That was in about a 18 month period. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, I think the, as far as like what I learned that helped me, you know, I, uh, and I think a lot of early stage entrepreneurs do this, they get super creative, right? And then super ambitious. I'm going to do this crazy business model. Like I had this thing I was going to sell only through partners and I was going to be this platform and it's going to be this marketplace. It's like every freaking buzzword and just like <laughs> put it into a bag and shake it up. And that was what I was trying to do, you know? And yeah. I didn't have a frame of reference at the time to realize that it was uh, statistically unlikely to work, right? And so... Yeah. 
you know, I, I the the way we do the in-person events in SaaS Academy, each of them is themed, right? So like one time the it'll be about marketing, another time it'll be about sales, customer success, operations, and we rotate through. So this was a sales intensive. And because I was selling only through partners, right? I mean, you think about the stuff that you would teach if you had two days to just go down the rabbit hole on sales, right? So some stuff on demand generation, how to run a, a you know, banger sales demo, how to do the follow-up strategies, like all of these things. And I'm just taking notes, man. And I'm looking at this and like, I can't do any of this stuff because of my fancy partner driven business model thing I invented. Right. And so, <laughs> so like that was the first um, kind of gut check where I got this whole go to market strategy that I couldn't implement any of it until I went back to the basics. And so we, you know, we niched down we chose a vertical. We uh, decided to focus on independently owned and operated gyms, a lot of CrossFit gyms and, uh, you know, similar models. And uh, yeah, we just got narrow and got specific and, got basic. And it's just like this lesson that I, you know, I've learned it a few times over the years, right? Where true success, I think, is just implementing the fundamentals, the unsexy, boring stuff over and over and over again, and really going for depth instead of breadth. And not until you've mastered the first discipline, do you kind of earn the right to unlock the next one and the next one and the next one. It truly has to stack on itself. And I don't know, it's probably a lesson that most entrepreneurs learn the hard way. I know I did. Yeah, I mean, we have we just have too many ideas and we get caught up on like, you know, prioritizing and just jumping from one thing to the other. But it seems like, yeah. you know, focused, going to the gym, you know, repeatedly lifting weights. It's just like, like oh, working out, man. Whoa, You're right. I got muscles. What happened? How did yeah. this happen? Right. Like, yeah, exactly. exactly. So. <laughs> That's funny. What, what do you say now? Like you're, you know, when you're working with, you know, work with hundreds of, of founders now through your academy, like you're seeing all these challenges, probably, you know, the younger version of you and in, in, in different yeah. in different ways and different challenges. What are, you know, 2024 today, February that we're recording, what are some of the most common challenges you're hearing about or, or, or seeing um, when it comes to scaling? Well, so, so here's the thing. We actually, we've evolved a lot since those days. We take a pretty mathematical approach to diagnosing a company when they come into the academy. It's a little bit different in the accelerator because a lot of them are pre-revenue. So there's, you don't necessarily have the inputs to mathematically diagnose things. It's a lot more about product market fit. But in the academy, like our primary program, you have to have, you know, at least 10K in monthly recurring revenue to enter that program. So at that point, you know, it's a it's an equation, at least to like turn the lights on mentally for a founder. It's an equation, right? We call it the growth ceiling formula. We didn't invent it. We just utilize it. But it's essentially that point, right, where, you know, given a certain amount of customer acquisition, your customer base will grow, and then your churn will eventually equal the number of customers that you're getting, your business will plateau. And so we, we put it on a graph and we put a date to it um, based on the trajectory of the graph. And so when you can sit with a founder and say, you know, Akil, based on these numbers you gave me, you're going to have achieved 75% of your growth unless you start changing these numbers 11 months from now and you're going to completely plateau, you know, uh, 25 months from now. And you're going to say, damn, all right, like, how do we fix it, right? And there's only, there's only three levers you can pull. You can get more customers, you can keep them longer, you can make them more valuable. Like those are the only three levers to change the math problem. So once you break it down that simply and we have a, even a calculator that we've built, to let the founders use it and tweak it. And it helps them figure out like, what's the most impactful number that I need to change, you know? And then a lot of the time, unless your churn is world-class, it's churn. Like retention is the foundation mm -hmm. of, a, of a rapidly growing business. It's also the one that's like the least exciting. Everyone wants to go get more customers. But at the yeah. end of the day, you can just build yourself a really, you know, exhausting hamster wheel if your retention is not dialed in. So it's usually churn. Um, Usually we got to do a little sales and marketing first to get everyone all excited. And then it's like, yeah. okay, now let's go solve this turn. But that's, mm -hmm. that's usually where it sits. It's a pretty common thread. 
That makes sense, right? I mean, if you're thinking about like a channel to add, you know, add recurring revenue, I guess there's an easier way, which is focusing on existing customers. So, you know, beyond that, so churn, churn, focusing on churn, would you say is, is one of the, the most important parts, would you say that you focus or your favorite area or strategy to, to retain or maintain or grow your recurring revenue? Or is there any others that you, you love to, to really focus on? Well, there's a difference between, I think, as, as a coach, right? It's like yeah. what I love coaching on versus what the client needs, right? Like advice without context is dangerous. So so <laughs> usually from a math standpoint, you know, it's usually churn that mm-hmm. they're going to need unless they're, you know, an enterprise, very high annual contract value, you know, type business. But if the, if it's a smaller or mid-market company, usually churn's the first area to optimize. But the, the next thing that we that we'll look at, which is terrifying for the founder, and I know that because it was terrifying for me, is the pricing strategy, right? And that's usually one of the biggest levers. And you ask that question, right? Like, oh, if someone bought your business, what would they do? And so many they're like, oh, they'd raise prices. I'm like, well, why aren't we raising prices then? You mm-hmm. know, and it's and it's not even like this, you know, drive to get every last penny out of your customers. It's really because you know I think there's a a real. Um, like there's a real correlation between like self-worth as a founder and insecurity, especially as a first-time founder. And like, am I good enough to charge the price that I know I need to charge? What if there's a bug? What if someone gets mad? They're going to think I'm a fraud. I only got eight customers, you know, whatever. Like all these stories yeah. we tell ourselves. And, and the For problem sure. is that, you know, then we carry that as we try to scale the company and we realize that your, you know, your gross margins aren't where they need to be. And it's just a function of, you know, insecure pricing from two years ago, but it's, it's super nerve wracking to go correct that. Um, but that's another pretty, pretty common leverage point is pricing. And what do you typically, you know, look at before, you know, when helping them make that decision, are you looking at competitors? And, and I think that's usually what people are looking at. Like, Hey, the competitor, you know, our guys are coming up and they're charging, you know, a lot lower than what we are. And then you kind of get afraid and you're like, why would I charge more? I may lose them. But, you know, we've seen scenarios where I think it was an acquisition. I, I can't remember if it was, it was bare metrics or there was a, an acquisition last year where, you know, acquisition was done and, they increased the price by 4x. I don't know if you've seen that story. And then yeah, I've seen it a few times. You see, you've seen it a few times, right? And, you know, churn dropped a little bit, but not as much, right? And I mean, I, I think there's some other effects of it later down the line, but curious to hear your thoughts on like, you know, how do you you, you know, price that properly? Yeah, I think there's there's really four components, I think, to doing a to doing a really well-executed price raise. So the competitive competitive analysis is one. I don't necessarily use that to drive the pricing, but you want to at least make sure that you're not you know, doing something that's going to make your market think that you're insane, you know, unless, unless that's the goal. So I'll use that as like a reality check, but the foundation for it, you know, is, and this is really tough to do and, and not all businesses can do it well, but if you can put a dollar value on the return on investment that they're going to get right, a dollar value on the result for your typical client that you're generating. And then, you know, typically you want your, your customer to get between a five and 10 X return on the dollar they're investing with you. And so that does two things. A, it gives you a way to, to figure out if you're grossly undercharging, but it also helps you hold a really high standard about the value that you're getting. This is a long process to nail that down because usually the way the conversation goes is, oh, well, I actually can't measure that. I don't know if my customers are getting ROI. And I'm like, awesome. I know what we're working on this quarter, right? We need to close that mm-hmm. feedback loop first so you can you know truly build a business with some confidence that it's delivering what it's supposed to, right? So I think like the value-based pricing is number one. The competitive landscape is number two. The third one that you touched on, you know, is is I have every founder, if they're considering a price increase, do this like uh, break-even analysis of like how much churn can you absorb before you're truly going backwards? Because otherwise it's all just like emotional, man, right? A customer Mm -hmm. leaves and you're like, oh, I messed up. And, you know, you could be 
you know, you could be great. You could be fine. Your MRR could have a 20% uplift, but if you don't realize it, you're going to get three customers who get pissed off at you and you're going to think you just burned down the whole business. Right. So like, again, math is the, the way to set yourself free on that one. Um, and then the fourth, which I think sometimes people overlook is the communication side of it, right. Where there's, there's a right and a wrong way to communicate it. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, having different communication strategies based on the impact on the pricing that, that's happening. So if someone's price is going up 3%, email's probably okay. If their price is going up 40%, you should probably be on the phone with them, you know? And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, not sleeping on the communication side of it's also really important because the customers are going to remember how you made them feel probably more so than, you know, the the 40% increase cost them hundred bucks a month or whatever. So yeah, makes sense. And, and if you can explain and justify your reasoning, I'm pretty sure they're they're understanding, yeah. right? Or most of them. Yeah, I guess it, it it always hurts, right? To to lose a customer, losing is always more painful than even if you gain you know, 50 percent yeah. or more. It's like that one customer I lost, but yeah, yeah. the whole fear <laughs> of loss, man. It's a real yeah. pain. We'll get you. It's real. It's real. The pain. The pain sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so so when it comes to reporting, right? Like you said, like there's there's so many things they're probably looking at, but they may just not be looking at the right things or tracking the right things. Um, so if we're, we're thinking of you know, when you work with founders and it comes to reporting, what are the real important metrics that you guys say, like, you got to measure this, right? And make sure you track it rigorously because mm -hmm. this is important, not just MRR, not just your leads, not amount of your sales, which you said is like the more exciting stuff. And then, you know, there's churn and other things. But if you're building a report, what are some main things I'm, I'm, I'm continuously tracking here? Yeah, I think... The answer is is somewhat contextual, right? But I mean, I think at a at a high level, you know, I'm looking at basically what are all the inputs to the to the math equation that is a recurring revenue business, and then what are all the outputs, right? So I mean, you know, I, I'll I'll start at the point of sale, go all the way up the funnel, right? So whether it's traffic or impressions on paid ads, click through rate, you know, landing page visits, opt ins, calls booked, show rates, close rates, you know, so I want to make sure we map the funnel, the acquisition funnel, really, really deeply. And then past that point of conversion, right, we look at things like um, activation rate, time to first value. Um, typically, we coach people to have a net promoter score like on a rolling 90-day cadence so you can gauge customer happiness and things like that. So, you know, I think that's probably the, the more slippery slope is we get the sale and we're like, all right, sick, we got the sale. And, yeah. and we're really happy about it, not realizing that, you know, maybe 30% of your customers are bouncing in 30 or 60 days because your activation's weak or because they don't understand how to use the product or whatever. So, you know, I'm, I'm big, um, you know, I always talk about like, it's fun, I'm doing a talk tomorrow on uh, customer obsession, right? And so, so I'm really big on just making sure we instrument to understand how we're serving the customer. So I love things like, you know, um, first response time for tickets, uh, like, you know, customer support, satisfaction, are they happy with the support that they're getting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then like the, the finance stuff that I think, a lot of people sometimes sleep on because they don't think it's that exciting, you know, but, you know, um, like DSO or accounts receivable, making sure that people are paying you and just all these, you know, like your cash flow forecasting, all the stuff that I think is, is really important for an exec team. But all that to say, that is like metrics bombed this conversation, like all that to say, like the the what that you measure, I actually don't think is nearly as important as the, the what you do with it when you measure it, right? Because you can measure a ton of stuff. And just have like a spreadsheet full of useless crap that you don't actually use to drive change. And so we have a framework that we call a precision scorecard. And it's a spreadsheet. It's nothing fancy. But, but the way that we coach people to track is that with very few exceptions, every metric should be tracked on a weekly basis. So a week runs Monday to Sunday. They track it the same way. And then every metric has a single person who's responsible for it. So then when you're in your team meeting... 
the key metrics that you're responsible for, you have to report on in front of the team. You should have a goal for your key metrics. You should know how you're tracking to the goal and bring a plan if you're not on track. And so like that behavior change is 10 times more important than, oh, you know, Matt said on this podcast, I should track, you know, DSO, like it, it, whatever, right? It's does the person who's accountable for it understand it? Is there a plan to improve it? What's the goal we said we would get to? And like, and it's so crazy because this nuance, like from the way you run a meeting, you know, if you're the CEO and you're, you know, reading off all the metrics and everyone's like, yeah, those are my metrics. Like it's so weak compared to them <laughs> having to stand tall and read their own metrics and they got to bring the plan, like pushing the accountability down the teams. That's how you actually use the metrics to drive change, which is probably the more exciting part of the conversation. Yeah, that makes sense, right? You're, you're, they're holding, you're not just looking at the metric, you're actually having the accountability and ownership and just like, you know, if you go to the gym and you track your weight every week, but you're not like, like, hey, I'm still the same weight as last week. But, you know, if you're not, if you're like, what did you do differently? If you're not yeah. thinking about what you're doing or what your plan is to improve it, then, you know, nothing actually happens, right? And it just starts adding up, you know. Totally. Yeah. So I love to shift gears. So you guys, you know, work with SaaS founders, help them on the business side, but you also work on kind of the personal growth and, and coaching to help entrepreneurs or, or people just become better leaders, right? And I think that's a big part of this. It's not just the metrics, but these are humans who have to manage people and there's, you know, you can't just hide behind a screen all day. Uh, yeah. So in your views, <laughs> what, what traits and characteristics, you know, or do you work with and, and to help define, you know, exceptional leaders from the folks you work with? And you know, I know part of that is like also the, the mission, right? And a mission and, and rallying your team and all that. How important do you, do you find that part of it? Yeah, I think the mission's super important, but I also think it's funny. We talked about this the other week inside the company that, you know, your mission, like as a leader, if you're not talking about your mission so often that other people make fun of you for it, like it's not enough, you know, like they should be able to make a Halloween costume about you talking about your mission. They, you know, they should be able to roast you for how often it comes up. But, and you'll be so bored internally, be like, can't believe I have to say this every single day, but I promise you that is what it takes to get a truly mission-focused company, right? So you're, and it's the same with marketing. Like you're going to be so bored of your marketing long before your market ever gets bored of your marketing. Like your distribution ain't that good, right? <laughs> so you got to yeah. keep saying the stuff over and over again. So, so yeah, I think it's important, but also, um, you know, from a leadership standpoint, there's a, there's definitely a couple of things. I think the first is, making sure that someone's truly bought in on personal growth and, and being uncomfortable because, you know, it's, it's the law of the lid from the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership, right? Like the business is never going to outgrow the founder's ability to grow. It's just not going to, you will hold your business back if you can't grow. And so I think that that's really important. Like not thinking you got it all figured out. You're always going to be a student of the game. We all are. Right. Um, so I think that one's interesting in 2024. I also have a pretty strong belief that, you got to be doing what you and me are doing right now. Like you have to be able to get out in the market and talk. You know, I was talking with Dan last week at an event and uh, he was laughing. He was like, someone asked me, should I start a SaaS company or start a media company? He's like, what do you mean? Or like, you got to do both. It's in 2024. You're going to be a SaaS company. Cool. And you're going to be a media company to market the SaaS company. Like there's not a world without content in, in 2024. And I think that that's surprising for some people. And so, so that's a huge you know, developmental mountain to climb. I've been on it myself. I'm, I'm naturally, you know, more of a quiet, humble, introverted kind of guy. And, and just building the skills to get out there and, you know, shoot content and put your face on a camera and write and put your name behind it and go on podcasts like this. I mean, it's, it's weird until you make it not weird anymore. You know, it's a hard mm -hmm. one to do, but, but you're not going to create a movement behind your company unless you can learn the skill. And so we work with a lot of people on that kind of stuff as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot to it, man. But I think, uh, you know, the, the founders got to grow is what it comes down to. And the ones that win are the ones that grow. 
And, and, and how important is it for the, the founder to be doing that, right? So like you said, there's maybe some tech CEO, very introverted, not very good at communicating. And it's, but it's, it's super important, right? To get the message out there. Yeah. Um, the, you know, you said the media, the, like, in able to scale, you have to get out there and, and promote yourself. How important is, important is it for that to be the CEO to, to do that? I, so, so there's two words there. There was founder and CEO. I don't think it's optimally it's the CEO, but doesn't always have to be. Um, but I think it should be one of the founders because for, for no other reason, not that a team member can't do it. They can, but you know, at the end of the day, when you strip away everything from a company, the things that are most likely going to still be there when the day is done are the founders. Right. And so I think that that building a personal brand and a reputation in the marketplace comes part and parcel with, you know, being the face of a business in that same marketplace. And so I, I think that it, it kind of presents a bit of a risk to the business if someone who's not a member of the founding team is the face of the business. So that that's the way that I think about it. But I would also, you know, yes, if you have like one founder who's super introverted and another one who's super charismatic, of course, take the guy with charisma and put him in front of the market. But that doesn't mean that everyone else is off the hook. You know, if you want to talk about a world-class founding team, world-class leadership team, everyone's talking about the things that they're great at. You know, you look at, at, you know, larger companies, they have engineering blogs for their engineering teams that talk about the different ways that they're, you know, doing stuff that non-engineers, that you'd read it and be like, well, language is this, right? They're talking about database structure and they're talking about this and this and that, but like, but it's their passion. It's what they're good at. And they can be leaders for other people like them with that skill set even though it's not, you know, that's not the face that like market stripes, not, you know, Collison or whatever, but, but the stripe engineers can still have a blog and the, you know, you get the idea. So, so I think that, that it's both, there should be a founder who's the face to the market, but also I think it's a great skill to build for anyone who's an executive to just talk about the stuff that they love. You shouldn't, it shouldn't be a persona. Like the only thing you can be for a long period of time is you talk about the stuff you love doing, but if you're building a business, you probably love building a business. So talk about that. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, and when it comes to you know leading effectively, you know there's always a balance, right? You you have friendship, personal business. You know you're trying to figure out how to, how to help this person grow, right? So you're a coach, you're a mentor, you're you're also a boss, so all at the same time. Yeah. How do you find that balance, or how have you shared you know with others to to help find that? So, it's tricky. The place where I think people go wrong is they will delay the uncomfortable conversation until it's to the point of no return and then they'll have it and they'll feel like an asshole. Hopefully I can say that on this podcast. Um, right. You're free. Yeah. Cool. I'm free. Let's go. <laughs> no, free. right. So, so they'll delay the conversation and, and then when they finally have it, it's like this hand grenade and nobody was expecting it. And then the friendship gets tangled. I've done it. I've done it wrong, you know? And so, so there's a couple of things that I think go towards doing it right. The, the first is around the way that you lead day in and day out. It's why I care about metrics. It's why I care about these, you know, operating rhythms, one-on-ones and weekly team calls and stuff like that is because your job as a leader is not to just make people feel good, right? You're, and, and it's not also to own every result. Like, yes, you own every result, but your team members need to own their results as well. And so the way that, that this should work right? Is that you work, let's say you work with a team member who's your direct report. You say, look, this is the outcome that you're here to go achieve. 
this is how we're going to measure it. And we need to agree on that. So you do that upfront. This is how we're going to measure success on this time domain. These are the numbers. This is how we're measuring it. This is what a, you know, new lead means, whatever, all of the little stuff that no one ever worries about until someone's angry, right? Figure all that stuff out upfront. And then your job is to just coach them to success in that outcome. And if you have the competency, you can coach them personally. If you don't have the competency, you can coach them to go find people where they can learn from, right? But either way, they need to get the skill in order to achieve the outcome that you guys agreed on. And so when I find that when I take the time to lay it out that way, ideally something that can be quantified in black and white before there's a whole bunch of emotions tied up into it, we can still have a really tight relationship as humans. But also when I say, look, this is off track and I really need you to fix it. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Like they can show up well in that conversation because it's not the first time we've had it. So I think that, you know, figuring out upfront what success looks like is a critical element of being a really solid leader and then coaching them to win. And also when it's time to have that uncomfortable conversation, like don't let it slide. You know, like a key mm. personal mantra for me is what you tolerate, you endorse. So, you know, if I don't say the thing, then I'm signing off that it's cool. And then all of a sudden, two months from now, when it's still messed mm. up and now it's not cool anymore, that's me not doing my job as a leader. I should have addressed it two months ago. You know, I think those couple things, you can still be tight with someone. You know, and when trying to identify when is the right time to, you know, so if you're coaching folks, you're trying to address poor, poor performance here, right? I mean, it, could, it could be months later that, you know, you're letting it slide, you're letting it slide, and then you're like, hey, what's going on? And then it becomes a frustrating situation. You know, how, how can you go about, you know, staying on top of it, but also pinpointing the root cause, the root cause of that performance gap um, and timing it where you're like, okay, something needs to happen where, you know, you're, let's say you're tracking the metric and you're, you're, checking in on it every day, but it's not changing. And, you know, they're going to make all these changes, but nothing's improving and you're not hitting their results. They're not hitting their, their, their goals. Um, for whatever reason it is curious to go, how you go about, you know, coaching them in that. In that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the first part is they shouldn't be surprised by the frequency, right? So my default again is tracking everything weekly. If we're going to track something daily and I'm expecting it to change daily, I'm going to tell them that up front and they're going to report on it daily. I'm not going to look and go tell them about it. They're, it's, a, it's a push instead of a pull, right? So they're going to push the data every single day if we decide we need that. And look, if something's like really threatening the business, it 100% deserves daily action. Like that's something we've done before. Um, but we, we just like only break the glass and take that out when you really need to, you know? Um, and so I don't know, like they should be reporting on it and telling you what they're doing. Like those two, it shouldn't just be a, a report. It should be, here's what I'm doing. Here's the plan. Here's what I'm doing. Here's a plan. Here's a number. Here's the plan. And so those two things should go hand in hand with one another. And, and look, like if you're not sure how to coach them tactically, admit it and go help them find whatever they need to find to go build the skill. But there's also like a less fun side of this, which is Sometimes the business needs what it needs, especially, you know, and I find it's usually from like, like at 300K in revenue, sometimes the skill sets will change at a million in revenue, the skill sets will change. When you cross 10 million, almost all of them change. And, and that's a really uncomfortable transition where a lot of companies will plateau for a year or two before they figure it out and start growing again. Um, and so there's, there's two sides to it, right? Either the leader can do the skill acquisition and get the skills that they need to keep growing, or you might've reached their ceiling. Like they might be a really incredible leader for a business doing less than a million dollars in revenue. And for a business doing $10 million in revenue, they might not be the right person. And that's right. totally okay. The only thing that's not okay 
is messing up the business or also messing up their career by keeping them in a role that they can't be successful at. So I think part of it is also figuring out like at what point am I going to acknowledge the fact that maybe this is a really wonderful human being who I love and I care deeply about and I have kept them in the wrong seat for far too long and I'm actually stopping them from being able to be successful at their job. So that's something to consider too. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, right? Just knowing where it's like, this is a performance gap due to, you know, is our system wrong or our process wrong? Or is this like the person who just doesn't maybe isn't able to properly manage this and and, and lead it and execute, I guess, on the, at, yeah. at the high level? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Because if you don't reconcile that as a CEO or executive, again, then it's on you, right? Then it's, then it's, then you have an inability to reconcile that problem for whatever reason. And so, and it's, it's the same thing over and over again, just, you know, everyone's got a boss, the CEO's boss or the customers, if you don't have a board, but everyone's got a boss. And so just thinking through it, that concept is like, if someone was evaluating me right now, would I be solving this problem the right way? And sometimes as a leader, the way you need to solve the problem is to go upgrade the people who are solving the problem on your team. But if you can't get yourself to do that for whatever reason, then you're, as ineffective as they are, and it's your fault. So uh, starts from the top, right, and goes down. Yeah, yeah, no agree. doubt. Love it. Cool, Matt. Uh, I'd love to shift gears. It's been super, super helpful. Um, talk more kind of the personal rapid fire questions. You ready for those? Awesome, man. Yeah. All right, Matt. What's uh, one activity you enjoy doing outside of work that gets you into a flow state? So my favorite thing to get into a flow state is um, like hiking with a rucksack, right? So I'll put like twenty or thirty pounds in the backpack and just get out there in nature and get after it. You know, I'm lucky to live um, pretty close to the Appalachian Trail on the East Coast of the U.S. So I got a lot of a lot of woods, a lot of good views, all that kind of stuff. So if I ever need to get in flow, man, I'm just, I'm out with a backpack, just uh, awesome. walking around and and usually no headphones. You know, I just want to oh, listen really? to nature, be alone with my thoughts. I, so I did this thing um, last winter called the 12-hour walk. It's a book by Colin O'Brady. He's a, this guy's crazy. I mean, he, he did a self-supported trek across Antarctica, like dragging a sled amongst many other what? things. Um, yeah, his book's a cool read, but but he has this thing called the 12-hour walk, which is exactly what it sounds like. You just, you go alone, phone on airplane mode, no headphones, no music, no nothing for 12 hours, and you just walk and be alone with your thoughts. And uh, and it's, it doesn't have to be like an athletic thing. It's not like walk as far as you can. It's literally just be outside for 12 hours, walk around, just do whatever. And, uh, you know, so... I was into the, the the backpack stuff before that, but especially after I did that, it was just like a really beautiful day. And I was like, all right, you know, I was, I was in flow for 12 hours, just thinking about life, man. And so wow. uh, 12 hours, there, I said, let me That's keep doing that. Yeah. It's cool. Was, was, was the backpack of the, of the rocks kind of a thing you learned through firefighting with, with carrying all the equipment or. No, I mean, it, it, it? <laughs> it's, it feels similar, I guess, yeah. you know, but, yeah. uh, but, but no, I mean, it, but it, it's one of those things that doesn't bother me because I spent so long doing it. So, so uh, yeah, like the breathing pack in the fire department's about 35 pounds or so. Um, at least they were when I was there. It might be heavier now. I keep adding stuff mm -hmm. to them. But uh, but yeah, I usually put like 25 or 30 pounds in the backpack and just go. I mean, it's not a it's not like a crazy you know load like you know soldiers are carrying and you know whatever. But it's it's enough where you feel it and it's all good. So it's yeah, fun. love it. What's uh what's one piece of advice you know you wish you had known, Matt? And if you can go back, you would tell your say 25 year old self. Yeah, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It goes back to about having uncomfortable conversations. Um, left unchecked, I can sometimes want to be a people pleaser. I have have like this need to be liked, um, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the farther you get in leadership, the less you can have a space for that. It doesn't mean that you walk around being an asshole or everybody, obviously, you know, but 
when there's an uncomfortable conversation to be had, you have to have it and you have to have a framework for having it and get good at having it. Like it's a skill to be built. And, uh, you know, I think I've got that skill now, but I, it would, I can think of a few situations where it would have served me if I had built it a little bit more deliberately a little bit earlier. So that's probably where I'd be with that one. No doubt. Yeah. Great advice. What are some of the biggest challenges I guess you guys are currently facing in order to continue grow, to grow SAS, SAS Academy or, you know, the other projects you're working on? Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's like an existential question, right? Where every business feels a certain way when it's small and every business inherently wants to be big, right? Or the mm -hmm. founders want it to be big. And so it's how do you grow without any type of restraints and just continue to, to keep everything world-class just the way that it felt when it was small. And I think that you know, we've done a pretty good job of that at SAS Academy. You know, I joined, it was 50 clients or so in the group. There's 500 now. Um, yeah. And I think, so it's it's different, but it's still excellent. And I look at the trajectory of going from 500 to 5,000. And like, if there's one thing on my mind, it's that like, we want to be the best place for B2B SaaS founders to go in the world, to get coached, to have community, to learn their skills, to develop personally. Like that is the the unwavering mission. We want to drive a thousand, we call them perfect exits when people sell their company. We want to drive a thousand perfect exits. And so, you know, to get there, we're going to have to help a lot of people. And so, you know, there's a lot of playbooks to just scale things by the numbers and it kind of like loses its shine and that's just not acceptable to us. So so the, the biggest thing I always wrestle with is, you know, like, like Disney, they can build some big parks, but they still got the magic, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like, how do you, how do you keep the magic in the business? If you're going to 10 X the size, that's, that's the thing I wrestle with every day. And what, what do you think that is? Do you think that's like, you know, some cultural, um, you know, structure that you have to set up or where do you think that, where do you think yeah. you could fall off? Yeah, I think it's a few things, right? So, so keeping the magic in the business as it grows, I think it starts with the culture, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, honestly, more specifically, it starts with empowerment, right? Where, as you start to build teams, everyone has their job. They're increasingly more specialized. And then if you have something that is your job, consequently, there are things that you might think are not your job, right? Like I work in accounting. Why would I call a customer? I work in this program. Why would I help someone in that program? Those kind of things. And so I think that just ruthlessly fighting against those silos is, is really, really important, you know, where I, I can't imagine that you would go to a Disney park. I'll just pick on them for a minute in a good way. And someone would be like, oh, I, I actually can't help you with this question. Let me go find someone else to show you where the restroom is, right? They're going to tell you where it is. And, you know, we, we do that a lot in our in-person events where we, like, dude, we stock Band-Aids in the staff room just in case someone asks for a Band-Aid, we can give them a Band-Aid, you know, it's like whatever, mm -hmm. just little stuff. But, um, but taking that principle and applying it throughout the entire company, where like customer happiness and, and customers getting results is every single person's job. If you're on the team, it's your job period, full stop. And I just think that making sure that that's part of your DNA as a company, which there's a few companies that have done incredibly well at that. Zappos is the first one that comes to mind, you know, there's a whole books on it. Um, you know, but getting that culture firmly ingrained in everyone, it shouldn't matter if you have 10 people or a thousand people, if that many people are focused on helping customers, it's going to be hard to lose, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's, I love that, you know, keep, kind of keeping the ownership and leadership across the team and, and saying, okay, look, we're all here to the mission. It's everybody's job here to, to keep on top of it and not just the one sole leader. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Who would you say, or what are some of the best three uh, resources that can be books or maybe people such as mentors or people you follow in the space who you say have been most instrumental to your success over these last few years, you know, other than maybe Dan? Yeah. Um, 
So let's see for the the COO operating types, uh, scaling people by Claire's Claire Hughes Johnson is an outstanding book. I like I call it the COO's Bible. Honestly, um, she was a former COO of Stripe, small company you might have heard of, right? Um, mm-hmm. And her book is outstanding. It's like it it's it's got great stories, but it also feels sometimes like a textbook. There's parts where you can fill it out, but that's like a compliment, right? Where it's just like it's very like like clinical in the way that she lays out her experiences and the frameworks and strategies that work for her scaling Stripe. And some of it was super counterintuitive. Like she talks about, she only thinks there's four things that you should standardize inside of a company and the rest is probably not worth the effort. I'm like, speak to me. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. Because everyone wants to like standardize everything. So it's the same and it's usually a waste of time. So, so scaling people is a really good one. Um, the Goal by Dr. Ellie Goldratt is another one that I love. It's from the 70s. It's about, you know, process and theory of constraints and kind of super nerdy, but it, it teaches through a story, which makes it a really fun read. The thing I gained from that book is like, I can now visualize any process or any business in my head as like an assembly line and figure out where the choke points are and the constraints and the what needs to be moved around to fix the problem. And so, so I think that one's really, really neat. Um, and then there's this little known book when it comes to like scaling a company um, called Extreme Revenue Growth by, what's his name, Victor? Edit this, let me find it though. I want to do him a solid because it's a good book. Victor Chang, Extreme Revenue Growth. And I actually got it at a SaaS Academy intensive years ago. Um, And it's like this this book that not a ton of people know about. And it's just, it's really, really solid advice for just, you know, how to scale a company. So I don't know, those are three good ones off the top of the list. Love it. I haven't, I haven't read actually any of those, so that's a, I'll definitely check those out. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, the second one you mentioned, I mean, that's kind of the, the engineering mind, which you, which you, you know, once you're able to build that and look at things like in process and systems, that's, that's an amazing thing. And how to break down big problems into smaller things. You can basically do anything, right? Totally, man. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Well, what does one. that, Matt, what does success mean to you today? Whether personally, business, financially, life, I guess there's no right answer. How do you define it today? Yeah, I um, I tend to compartmentalize what success means. Otherwise, I tend to like descend into workaholism accidentally, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that success for me, if I had to boil it down, success for me is the freedom to allocate my time where... I feel like it serves the most people, including my family at the head of that table. Right. So I, you know, and, and I don't want to sound idealistic, like first company, first startup, you're going to work your ass off. Don't probably don't know how to be efficient yet. Probably don't have a team, probably don't have money. I didn't have any of that stuff. You know, I was squirting water for a living and then decided to like accidentally start a software company, man. I was up coding until mm-hmm. seven o'clock in the morning with, you know, two kids under two years old at home. I mean, it was insane. Wow. Wow. Um, so like, but the thing is, is to not make that the way you do things forever. Cause you know, also that left me crazy out of shape, super unhealthy, super overweight, like just exhausted all the time. So it was a season. It was a season that I'm happy is over, (laughs) you know? Um, but you know, I, I think success really comes down to, to time allocation. Right. And so I think there's a, there's a baseline level of financial success that uh, financial success that unlocks the ability to allocate time more deliberately. So like, you know, you do have to grind for a certain period of time to hit that, that first level, but also like what got you here won't get you there. That old advice that always seems to be true. Right. And so eventually like working harder stops being the answer because your goals are just larger than what you can fit into a day. And at that point, you're either going to plateau or you're going to get smart and start leaning into building leverage and building teams and 
figuring out how all that stuff works. And that's what comes down to the time allocation. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I like to take my kids to school. I like to work out every day. Um, and I know I've started to really think more about like impact, community impact, social impact, and just like how I want to try to leave a, a, a teeny tiny dent on this big old world we live in, you know? Um, but I, I think that it's a, it's a sequence though. It's tough to do that before you, you know, carve out the first one in business. And so I think it's just a, it's a journey, man, you know? Yeah, I hear you, right? You got to kind of take care of yourself, make sure you're kind of all set, your family's good. And then you can start thinking of, you know, other people and helping others, right? Just more effectively yeah. and using your mind for other things. But yeah, once you're in survival mode and you're trying to build and you're trying to, you know, take care of yourself and your family, there's, that's, that's always priority, right? Yeah. Dude, that yeah. survival mode mindset is a real thing. Like, I mean, I've, I spent years yeah. there, you know, and cause like, yeah. I, I don't, I don't come from a lot. And so, you know, it's, it's funny because it's, it seems like infathomable to someone who's in that mindset or in that stage of their life to talk about like, Oh, allocate your time. And you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah. oh, what are you talking about? You know, but like, but it, there, there is a, a trajectory where you can, you can get to that point, but it's not, it's just not a, it's not a one day thing. It's not like, a, Oh, I'm going to decide to do this differently. It's like I said, it's just a, it's a, it's a path. It's a sequence of events. And so I think getting out of that survival, you know, period of life, like that's, that's honestly, that's success for many, many people that is in and of itself success. And that's what the first win that unlocks anything else that you want to do. So like, if you're there, you're not wrong. It's not bad. It's, it's just where you're at. Just focus on solving that one problem. You know, I've been there. It sounds like you've been there too. Right. Um, and so just solving that one problem is the foundation for everything. So don't worry about all this other stuff until you can solve that just focus on one thing. Yeah, just one point I thought, you know, so I, I, I say I'm like, you know, grew up from, you know, poor book background most of my life and then, you know, built built my way up. But then there's a, there's a, the, the, the issue becomes where the number, you know, is is maybe a lot, you put this number in your mind, it was a lot bigger than you think that you need to get out of. And you just stay in that loop for as long as possible. And even though there's no reason to maybe financially and you get to a point where you're like, I'm fine, but your mind doesn't learn until you can say, hey, no, wait, actually, I'm okay. I'm, I don't need to. And then you stop yeah. for a second and realize like, wait, I'm, I'm actually good. And then, yeah, but that, that, you know, people may not learn that until they're already making, you know, 20, 30 million dollars or even more. Right. And so, sure. yeah, it's a thing. Cool. Yeah. Love it, Matt. Uh, this, is, this is awesome. I'd love to, um, just to wrap it up and where can founders get in touch with you, learn more about you or, 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 you know, learn more about SAS Academy as well. Yeah. So if you're a B2B SaaS founder, we'd love to, you know, help you on your journey. SaaSacademy.com is where you go for that. Um, outside of that, I am publishing and talking on the internet as much as possible because I try to try to practice what I preach. So uh, mattverlack.com is the website. We've got a book coming out, Software as a Science, which will be out later this year. We'll talk about that on the website as well. Uh, yeah, newsletter, YouTube, it's all on the website. So hit me up there and uh, I'm not going anywhere. That's where to find me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate this uh, conversation and good luck with the, with the book launch. Hope, the, hope make Thanks, sure you guys you. check it out. Right. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.